Thank you, Bob. I was going to begin with a prayer of my own, and then I looked in your program, and on page 15, there's a great prayer entitled, O Lord, Our World is a Mess. And the whole reason for evangelization is our world's in a mess. So it's an appropriate prayer for us to begin with, and I think we can say it together. O Lord, our world is a mess. Our culture is under attack. Our brethren are dying by the sword every day. Our church is in crisis. Our system of government is under attack from without and within. Religion is being denigrated by those who prey on souls, demanding that they be given the right to kill the unborn, bring scorn upon the gift of marriage by honoring same-sex partnerships, and demanding equality with sacramental marriage. We find wherever we go anger, hatred, horror, dishonor, loss of pride, spirituality. Pornography is placing our men and women in bondage. Slavery of women is rampant in parts of our world. Lord of lords, king of kings, suffering servant, brother of those who believe, our faithful brother and father, Thank you for showing us that we are in the midst of battle, between the light and the dark, between good and evil. Thank you for showing us so clearly the answer to our prayers and for providing us the weapons we need for battle, confession, contrition, Eucharist, and calling upon Mary. With the Lord as our shield and buckler, let us pick up our weapons and follow Pope Benedict XVI as we engage in battle with the enemy. Inspire our Catholic brethren to hear the word of the Lord, to act upon his word, to be faithful to their baptismal promises, to stand for good against evil, to search for and follow the truth as enumerated in Scripture and through the holy and apostolic Catholic Church. And may we all be faithful to our Holy Father, Benedict XVI, Amen. And we seek now our Blessed Mother's intercession, her special prayer for this day and for our world, which is in a mess. And so we say together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for having me here. That was a good introduction by Bob. I was going to say some of those things myself. You know, I've known Father Judice since I was literally that high. He was the assistant pastor at Holy Angels in Barrington. He did not want to go there, but he did in obedience to the bishop. And it was so providential, especially for me. He had a great influence on me in my formation, in my development, in my growth, in my preparation for the priesthood, and in my priesthood as such, since I've been ordained. He preached at my first Mass. You usually, when you're ordained, have the priest who has been the greatest influence on you preach your first Mass. And I have to say, Father Judice goes back the longest of all the many good priests that I had influencing me in my formation. But I will forever be known to him as his altar boy, no matter what I do. I could become Pope someday. I'll, in his mind, I'll always be his altar boy. So I knew that was going to come out in the introduction. 
Let me begin today with a couple of passages, one from Scripture and one from our Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI. The Scripture text is familiar to all of us, I think, Matthew 28. It's the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew, the very last words of that chapter of Matthew. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. When Jesus approached and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and know that I am with you always until the end of the age. And here's the line from our Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, which he spoke back in 2005 in the very first public statement he made outside the Vatican. He said this, The Church, by its very nature, is missionary. Its duty is to evangelize. At the beginning of the third millennium, the Church feels with renewed intensity that Christ's missionary mandate is more timely than ever. Because our world's in a mess, a big mess. And let me add to this the instruction of our own bishop, Bishop Thomas Tobin, who wants all of us, priests, lay people, the entire diocese, to really be focused on evangelization during this particular year. If you haven't heard this in your parishes, you will hear it in the very near future. So when Father Judy said to me, what do you want to talk about? Because I said to him first, what do you want me to talk about? He said, well, whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> I said, well, you know what, I'm going to talk about evangelization. I said, number one, it's the scriptural mandate in Matthew and in a lot of other places in the Bible. It's something our Pope, Pope Benedict, spoke about at the very beginning of his pontificate. All good popes have made the point that we need to be spreading the gospel as best we can. And number two, I thought it was a good idea to talk on this topic because it gave me an opportunity to score some points with the bishop, you know. And <laughs> It's always good to score points with your boss, and even for Father G. So if you see Bishop Tobin telling me we're at this great conference and Father Ray talked about evangelization, and that will be one point for me, and give Father Judice credit for having the conference and give a good point to him. You know, we are all called, and Bob said this at the beginning, we are all called to bring others to Christ. A lot of people think that's the job of the priest, and it is. It's part and parcel of our vocation, but it's everybody's, part of everybody's vocation. And your role as lay people in evangelizing others is unique. It's different than mine. We form people in contexts like this. You as lay people are called to evangelize in a very important place, out there in the world, in the marketplace. And this is something I think a lot of lay people don't understand or they don't fully grasp. You ask lay people, what do you do for the Lord? And what do a lot of lay people respond? They say, well, I teach CCD in my parish. I'm a lector. I'm an extraordinary minister. I work at the St. Vincent de Paul Society. All very good stuff. But according to the Second Vatican Council, the primary role of lay people is to take the gospel message into the world, into the marketplace. See, there are people you encounter every day that I'm never going to encounter at your workplace, in your own particular environment. And it doesn't matter if you're retired or not, you all have your little environment, your circle of friends, people you interact with every day. They need to hear the gospel message from you. But the question is how? That's the key question. How do we do it? 
I think many Catholics want to evangelize, but they know one thing. They don't want to evangelize like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't think that's the right way to do it, and I tend to agree. I mean, I admire them for their zeal, for their commitment to what they believe is true, even though I believe they are <clears throat> wrong in a lot of what they believe. But people are uncomfortable. Catholics are uncomfortable with that kind of approach, but they don't know of any alternative. And that's what I want to deal with today. And Bob indicated this at the beginning, and that must have been the Holy Spirit indicating that to him. I want to make these talks, these two talks, as practical as possible. You know, as priests, we go to a lot of these conferences and big events. And one thing that just drives even us priests crazy is you hear talks that are heavily theological and wonderful, and they're all true, but they don't give you any practical insights that you can really apply in your daily life. Well, when you leave here today, I want you all to have a sense of two things. Where you want to lead people in evangelizing them, and how to get them there. Now, does that mean you'll be successful in every attempt to evangelize somebody to bring them to Christ in the future? I wish I could tell you it, it would, but it's not going to happen. And remember, Mother Teresa said, we are not called to be successful, we are called to be faithful. And when we are faithful, there is success in that, and there will be many great successes. The first point to be made here, I think, it's so crucial, is that evangelization is ultimately the work of Jesus Christ. It's not really our work. Although, as, as well, so much of what Bob said in his introduction is so providential, he indicated there that we are God's co-workers, and that's the truth. It is the work of Christ. God has to be involved in the evangelization process if it's going to be successful at all in any instance, but we are to be the Lord's co-workers. St. Augustine had a great saying. I love this saying of St. Augustine. He said, without God, I can't. But without me, God won't. And that's how it is when we evangelize others. Without God, without God's grace, it's not going to happen. But we have to be willing instruments of the Lord in the whole process. Every once in a while, God will act in a sovereign way like he did with St. Paul, knocking him on his keister on the road to Damascus, in a sovereign, direct way from heaven. Sometimes God does that in converting people. But more often than not, most of the time, he uses other people and circumstances to change the hearts of unbelievers. What I want to do in this first talk is share with you the three steps that are involved in the evangelization experience. When we come to Christ, we normally pass through these steps or stages, where, whether we are conscious of it or not. And when we see somebody else come to Christ, they also pass through these steps or stages. Now these things are in these stages, these three things are not totally isolated from one another. It's not as if you go to step one and then to step two and to step three and now you're magically perfect, the perfect Christian and totally evangelized. In some sense they overlap with each other and in some sense they continue throughout our lives. But I think naming them is very helpful because it enables us to see how God works to save souls. And it helps us to see how we can be involved in helping him to bring the world to himself. Now, I have to be honest with you here. These three stages 
are not things that I thought up myself. I cannot claim originality here. I have to be honest. <laughs> I first heard these on an audio tape about 15 years ago. Someone gave me a copy of this audio tape by a father, Bruce Neely. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was, at the time, the director of the U.S. Bishop's Office of Evangelization. And what struck me about this tape, again talking about the practical, is when I heard him outline these three stages, I thought to myself, my gosh, that's what's been happening in my parish. That's what's been happening to Michael and to Jane and to Mary. It helped me to make sense of what I was experiencing as a priest in trying to evangelize others. Let me use a biblical story to illustrate what these three stages are. I could use a number of stories in the Bible, but this one came to mind. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Most of you are familiar with the story, but for the few who might not be, let me read it to you from Luke 19. Entering Jericho, Jesus passed through the city. There was a man na there named Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector and a wealthy man. He was trying to see what Jesus was like, but being small of stature, he was unable to do so because of the crowd. He first ran on in front, then climbed a sycamore tree, which was along Jesus' route, in order to see him. When Jesus came to the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I mean to stay at your house today. He quickly descended and welcomed him with delight. When this was observed, everyone began to murmur, he has gone to a sinner's house as a guest. Zacchaeus stood his ground and said to the Lord, I give half my belongings, Lord, to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone in the least, I will pay him back fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for this is what it means to be a son of Abraham. The Son of Man has come to search out and to save what was lost. Now, when you step back and analyze that story, what you see is it has three elements which correspond to these three stages of evangelization. Father Neely would call them, number one, the awakening experience. Number two, the conversion or the metanoia. And number three, discipleship. First thing to note about that story is Zacchaeus had a personal experience of Jesus Christ, a personal encounter with the Lord that day in Jericho. In other words, he had what Father Neely would call an awakening experience, an experience that touched his heart, that touched him at the very depth of his being, that was transformative. Now, prior to that, who was Jesus to this man? Just of somebody he had heard about. He obviously had heard about him because he was curious and he climbed that sycamore tree. But Jesus was distant. The decisive moment comes when Jesus looks at him in that tree, calls him by name, and he shows Zacchaeus that he's personally concerned about him. That's what began the transformation in this man. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. I mean to stay at your house today. And it says, Zacchaeus came down immediately. He welcomed our Lord with delight. The awakening experience in evangelization is absolutely key in the whole process. At least that's how I, I see it. Because if somebody doesn't really know that God cares, 
that God's real, that God loves them. You can talk all you want about Jesus. He's going to be what he was for Zacchaeus before this moment in Jericho. Somebody out there, somebody who might be a nice guy, but he's totally irrelevant to me in my life. I have seen the importance of the awakening experience over and over and over again in my ministry, especially with young people, though it's, it applies to everybody. I've been blessed to have a, a very good youth group down in Westerly for the last, I've been in Westerly 21 years this week, a long time, first as the assistant, now as the pastor. And a lot of great things have happened there, and many young people have come to Christ over the years, and several of them have become priests and religious by the grace of God, by the grace of God alone. And one of those young people who had a transforming experience was a young man named Michael. He was in youth group when I began down there in 1988. And his experience really helped me to see how crucial this awakening is. Michael was a very popular high school kid. He played basketball. Uh, everybody really liked Michael. And he came very faithfully to my youth group. I have it on Thursday night now. I think back then it was on Tuesday night. So he came pretty much every Tuesday. He participated. He was a great young person. I didn't know he was a big partier as well on the weekends. You know, father's always the last to know these things. But along the way, maybe about a year into my time at St. Pius, his grandmother, a very saintly woman named Mary, Mary Curzio, invited him to go on a pilgrimage to Medjugorje. Were you on that, Tom? No, you didn't go on that one. Okay. Because a lot of people from Westerly went uh, on pilgrimage to Medjugorje over the years. So Michael went, and he came back a different kid. He was the nice kid he always was, but he gave up the drinking, and he really began to change his life. And when he graduated from high school, he was voted the most respected in his class. I don't think early on in his high school career he was the most respected in his class, but that was the quality of his change, and his friends recognized it. And that showed me how important it was for young people and not so young people to have some kind of transforming real encounter with Christ and how important that was to getting them to truly convert their lives. And by the way, that young man right now is Father Michael Najum. He's the vocation director for the Diocese of Providence. And he wouldn't mind me telling that story because he's told it a lot of times himself. What's that? He never told you? No, he never told us, but you know, he, I knew when he first came into our parish as a substitute priest, and he would come and he knew he was nervous, and then he would be picking at his collar, and, you know, and I thought, oh my God, he is so nervous. And he has turned out to be the most, the most intense person, especially at Mass. And I mean, he takes great, great pride, not pride, pleasure in being able to, you know, bring this out of the people that come to Mass. He's a wonderful, wonderful priest. Wonderful priest. I say amen to that. He actually just wrote a book, too, uh, Letters to Seminarians, um, and it's just been published, so uh, you can, I think, find it on the Internet. I told them I better get a free copy, <laughs> but I haven't gotten mine yet. just came out.
That's the awakening experience. Now, for a lot of people, it happens like it did for Father Najum on a pilgrimage, on a retreat. Although, really, it can happen any time. People can have an awakening experience sitting in the quiet of their parish church in front of the Blessed Sacrament. It can happen in your room. It can happen at a mission. It can happen at a regular Sunday Mass, a regular weekday Mass. It can happen in a purely secular setting, which is how it happened for St. Paul, if you remember. He wasn't in any spe specifically religious atmosphere. He was on the road to Damascus. He was on the street. And the Lord took care of business there. But in my experience, it often happens on retreats and such because those are times when we tune out the noise of the world and really are able to tune into God in a deeper way. I think it's also important to mention that this kind of experience can even happen in the midst of a tragedy. It doesn't have to happen in a big emotionally positive experience where we're feeling great joy in our hearts because we've just encountered Jesus in this powerful way. It can happen in the midst of darkness. About 10 years ago, a woman wrote to me about her experience in the midst of tragedy, and I found this in my files the other day. And Let me preface this by saying this woman is one of the most active, involved people in my parish right now. She does incredible work for the Lord. But for her, the awakening experience came in conjunction with a tragic death in her family. Here's what she wrote. After having been a non-practicing Catholic for 15 or so years, I returned home to the church three years ago when my father passed away. My faith was never really gone, just dormant. After my father's passing, the longing to be close to God, the Holy Trinity, and to Mary rekindled and became very strong in me, growing each day. In my father's death, this was his gift to me. My father gave me life in my physical birth, and he gave me life again in my spiritual rebirth. So it can happen, even in the worst circumstances of life. But regardless of when it happens, it can't stop there, or it's not going to last. I've taken a lot of young people to the Steubenville East Youth Conference, a very powerful experience for them. Every summer, now they're running it at URI, used to be at La Salette Shrine, a three-day spiritual, it's a retreat, a conference, and a lot of young people give their lives to the Lord. Mike Najum went on, it was transforming for him in some ways. Um, I've seen a lot of young people fall away after that because it wasn't followed up. They didn't see to it that it was followed up. You know, I, I mentioned my youth group down in Westerly. That really wasn't started by me. See, I don't start anything any good. <laughs> but I pick up the ball and try to run with it <laughs> for the Lord. Uh, some of you may know Father Frank Santilli, a great priest in the diocese. Father Santilli actually was my predecessor as assistant pastor in Westerly. He was there in the early and mid-80s. And he started this youth group in response to the request of some teenagers who had made a search weekend and had an awakening experience. They had gone on this retreat. They used to be at Dominic Savio in, in Peacedale. They used to have them all over the state. I think they still do have search weekends for young people. And these young people came back to Westerly. Now, if you know Westerly, it's sort of out of the way. <laughs> And for our young people to stay connected to Dominic Savio, even though it was just in Wakefield, it would have been a lot. They would have had to go up there every Thursday for their prayer share group. So they said to Father Santilli, look, 
we know we need something more to keep the fire going. So can you start something for us? So we started this prayer share group, and that's what I picked up, and that's what Mike Najem was a part of when, he first, uh, when I first came to Westerly. But they understood what I'm saying here right now, that the awakening experience is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Going back now to that story of Zacchaeus, here we have a man spiritually awakened by Jesus Christ, encountering the Lord in a powerful way on that road to Jericho one day. But notice that immediately afterward, he did something. After looking honestly into his own heart, he faced his greed, he faced his dishonesty, and he openly acknowledged those sins. And not only that, that was good enough, but he went the step further. He resolved to make amends for what he had done. As he said, and here I quote, Behold, half my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. See, Zacchaeus resolved to show by his actions that he was a changed person. And that's step two, according to Father Bruce Neely. Personal conversion of life, or metanoia. Metanoia is a Greek word, you find it in scripture, and it literally means to make an about face, to turn around. So here we had Zacchaeus, and we can presume he was a typical tax collector. They were cheats, they were thieves. They had a certain amount of money that they were supposed to collect for the pagan Romans. That made them, uh, in, that put them in disfavor with their fellow Jews, number one. So they would collect that money, but they would charge usually a lot more than they actually had to pay to the Roman government. And they would take off the top for themselves, which is why they were so hated. So we can presume that this guy was a typical tax collector, but he wanted to clean up his act. And that's what happens if Jesus truly touches your life. If you have this awakening experience, you will want to put off the old man and put on the new man, as St. Paul would put it. Remember in the book of Acts, Pentecost Sunday, apostles have their big awakening experience. They go right out into the streets where they were fearful to go beforehand. The Holy Spirit enables them in power to go out there. Peter gives this incredible sermon. And what happens? People hear it. They have an awakening experience. And then they say to Peter, well, what do we do now? And what does Peter say? He says, you must reform your lives. You must have a metanoia. You must turn away from what you've been walking toward in your life, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's the way it works. Now, we aren't told anything more about Zacchaeus' experience the day he met Jesus. The story kind of ends. But since Jesus said that he wanted to stay at Zacchaeus' house that day, we can presume that he actually did that. So I ask you today, what do you think Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about over dinner. The weather, <laughs> the Roman taxes, and probably they did talk about that. <laughs> Politics, maybe. But I guarantee you, I'm convinced they talked about discipleship. See, Zacchaeus had been touched by Christ. He had turned away from his sins. And I'm sure his next question was, Jesus, this is great. I thank God you've come into my life. I thank God I've been given the grace to turn away from my sins and to resolve to make amends. But where do I go from here? What do I do in the future, Jesus, to stay a faithful follower of yours? 
There's going to be a lot of temptations to get off the right track. What do I do to stay on it? And I'm quite certain that Jesus gave him the answers he was seeking. And I'm sure it was an inspiring conversation, kind of a prayer and study session all rolled up into one. For us, this stage is ongoing, that discipleship stage. Like the metanoia stage is, I trust you are all serious Catholics or you wouldn't be here on a Saturday morning. Well, if you're a serious Catholic, you know and I know, you need to make the sacrament of reconciliation a major part of your spiritual life. See, confession, regular confession, renews our metanoia. You know, we can turn away from our sins and then it's easy to turn back if we're not careful. And we all do that to some extent. We need that ongoing repentance, that ongoing cleansing. And that's provided for us in confession. And if you're a serious Catholic, you will never stop growing in your relationship with the Lord, in your discipleship, in that third stage. In fact, I dare say today is part of stage three for all of you. You didn't realize it maybe before, but this is a part of your ongoing growth as a disciple in learning how to follow Christ and learning how to be a more effective instrument of his love, peace, and joy. Before I close this talk, let me say that one of the reasons why I think we often fail to evangelize as Catholics is that we reverse the order of these stages. That's a big mistake. For example, we put our children in CCD class or we put them in Catholic school. And what do we do? We teach them about Jesus. We teach them how to live as his followers, the do's and don'ts, so to speak. We teach them the commandments first, and we think that'll do the trick. But guess what? We all know this. It often doesn't, because they are not motivated by what they need to be motivated by, which is love. And love for a person. See, a lot of them are only motivated, if they are motivated at all, by a desire to do good and avoid evil. And you know what? That doesn't last. Judge, you can probably testify, you had enough people in court who uh, may start or have started off with good intentions, but, you know, eventually those good intentions went out the window. See, nothing motivates us like love for another person. I think you're all, almost all, old enough to remember Bishop Fulton Sheen. I only remember him on tape <laughs> and video. But he exercised a profound influence on me in my formation, and I've read a number of his books. In one of his books, he shares this little anecdote. He said in the book, it's about a boy he once knew. Listen to his description of this boy. This young man would not comb his hair, wash behind his ears, clean his fingernails, or come to the table with clean clothes. And when he went out the door, he always slammed it. You, some of you parents can probably relate to this. But then one day he came down, hair combed, clean clothes, hands well washed, and clean behind the ears. And when he went out the door, he closed it gently. His parents could not understand it. They had begged, coaxed, pleaded, and bribed to no avail. What they did not realize was he had met Susie. <laughs> <laughs> he had an awakening experience of sorts. 
Meeting Jesus Christ in an awakening experience makes all the difference. The rest follows from that. Amen? Amen. I'm going to give you some time now to be in your small groups. Father Judice instructed me, and I am his loyal altar boy, to give you a couple of questions to ponder. <laughs>